Kubis Vestere, Chief Executive of ArcelorMittal. When did you actually join the company, Kubis? Uh, the start of 2018. But prior to that, I was, uh, I was at Mittal for almost 20 years and then uh, sort of took a different avenue for a few years. Mittal outside of South Africa or in, in South Africa? No, I worked for the old East Corps and I worked for Mittal internationally for two years. So you've seen a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Correct. We know that the financial results that you've just released for 2021 were spectacular by any means. It's best profits ever. But these come on some pretty rough times. How much money did you guys lose in the run-up to this really good year? I think after 2010, uh, the group lost about over 20 billion in, in losses, of which 12 billion were cash losses. So the financial drain and strain was, was very severe. Was there any chance during that time that Mittal, which is a global company, would have pulled out of South Africa or indeed pulled out of the company? Uh, <coughs> Mittal, the holding company, supported the, the local unit for many years. Uh, to an, I mean, at some point they had more than 8 billion in, in funding uh, to the organization. And as a one shareholder, they supported the company uh, to the benefit of all shareholders. So we've seen the share price rocket. The perception is you guys have been squeezing the business in South Africa and you've squeezed every little bit of cash out of it in, the, in this year. Your, your total balance sheet a value of your land and properties and buildings, in other words, the factories, is 8 billion rand, and yet in the last year you made 8 billion rand. So that's good news on that side. But from what you've just said to us, you're only clawing back losses from the past. I think that's a bit of a, a, a misperception in the market that uh, the local unit has been used as a cash cow, where actually Mittal has funded the local unit for, for many, many years. You know, up to uh, two years ago, we had many raw materials bills outstanding from them which we did not pay and could not pay um, so uh, yes it's a it's, it's a wrong perception last year was a, a good year for us um, I don't think it's abnormal uh, conditions we will not necessarily see that continuing but the company is totally different company today than four or five years ago you also want to reposition the company as a champion in South Africa you are South African, it's pretty obvious, and you've worked with the group for many years. What went wrong in South Africa that a, a massive company like Isco was allowed to become less and less relevant? And, and I mean this because taking out your, from your most recent results, it was interesting to see that you produce 3 million tons of steel in this country. The total production is about 5 million from South Africa. Egypt has got 10 million and you talk about the big, big countries in the world, they're in the over 100 million tons. So we've really become not the powerhouse that it used to be. No, 100%. I mean, and it all starts with economic growth and consumption. I mean, consumption in South Africa has deteriorated and decreased well, co consistently over many years. Whereas the competitiveness, the cost base of South Africa has also changed. I mean, we used to be a low-cost producer with benefits from iron ore, benefits from electricity and all of those things. So with a diminishing domestic market and those disadvantages, it becomes difficult to sustain and survive. If you could wave a magic wand and go back to the old ISCOR, uh, which divided into two, 
with what is now Kumba Iron Ore and ArcelorMittal. Would you have kept them together, given that iron ore is by far your biggest uh, raw material input? Of course, I think if you have your integrated raw material supply, it's always beneficial. But I think if you look at our results, I mean, we have diversified our raw material supply base with smaller domestic suppliers uh, substantially. That uh, our raw material increased last year by 10%, where internationally it increased by 42%. So yes, it would have been nice, but also I think we've, we've, we've took a different approach a few years ago. And s- instead of complaining about the issue, we have assisted and developed younger or smaller companies and are now almost, uh, well, we're 100% source from more cost link than uh, export parity pricing. It's funny when you go back to COVID-19, and of course it was horrible uh, for big swaths of the South African economy and for big companies, but it also got people to refocus. And I, I get the feeling reading your annual report last year and reading your results that were released last week that this has also been the case with you. You've, because of COVID, it almost gave you a shock, a wake-up call to, to do things differently. Alec, I think a wake-up call came earlier. I mean, we did out in 2018, we look at the, our way forward and we say if we don't substantially change the organization, we will not be there in 19 and 20. Uh, so our sort of uh, restructuring path started in the latter part of 18. And, and we did difficult things. Uh, as I said, on the raw material side, we've changed the, 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 the way the company procure and operate. On the people side, the cost side, we've did a, a lot of things that was difficult but necessary. And I think where we are today, if I look at our competitiveness versus international uh, companies, we are there or thereabouts. We have uh, certain inherent problems. I mean, uh, rail electricity in South Africa is expensive. Uh, those things that you, you can't uh, compete. Our productivity is not where it should be. Uh, and our people are expensive. And those are issues that we still have to work on. How do you improve productivity at an organization like yours? Well, automation is one thing. You can, you can. Uh, I think, as your your cost of, of salary becomes uh, too much, it becomes cheaper to automate. Um, you have to digitalize. You have to work with less people, and those type of things. I think there's um, there's still opportunities, but I mean, we have reduced our our labor headcount substantially. So we're at the point where we can now tweak constantly instead of having to do radical things. But the fact that you produce 3 million tons of steel a year and you've got international competitors that produce many, many, many times that, does that not put you at an almost permanent disadvantage just from scale? From a scale perspective, yes. But I think you also have a domestic uh, supplier always have an, an added benefit or a benefit from location. I mean, we are close to our customers, we're close to the market. We also, uh, our 3 million tons is, you get uh, plants overseas that produce 3 million tons of only one product. We produce 200 products, which also make it a bit more uh, expensive, but also closeness to the customer. And I think one of our strategic pillars is also to be, be more connected to the customer going forward and see how we can jointly, I want to say, mine the value chain. I, I was looking at that as well, and this new customer focus of yours. Uh, these, are, these are often, many companies come out with these really nice words, but 
actually implementing it, actually taking a, uh, like an oil tanker and focusing it on the customer for a company like Iscor, which has been the prime provider of steel in South Africa for generations. How do you get that through the organization? Well, I think Sorry, and I mean ArcelorMittal now, ISCO in the past. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. No, no, I think, uh, I think we, we acknowledge that from a customer servicing perspective, we've, we've made mistakes. But on, on average, on general, our customers, we have a good relationship uh, with customers. I mean, I meet my customers very often. Uh, but how do, we, how do we improve that service offering? Uh, to, and it's by training people, by getting in new people, by innovating uh, and I'm comfortable that, that we have the skills base. We just have to, as you rightly say, get out of that uh, big tanker mindset and be more nimble. Are you winning on that? Oh, yes, I think so. I uh, think so. Give us an example of how. I think uh, an, an example of how is technology. We apply uh, new systems where customers' complaints can be resolved a lot quicker instead of six months six weeks and stuff like that. So you take a bit of frustration out of their lives. And, and we have many other initiatives to keep on improving on that. We do customer surveys, understand what's the problems, and work at it. When you took over as CEO, did you have any idea that it was going to be as tough as it has been? I mean, clearly COVID was, uh, was, was an unknown at that point. But that you would have had go through such a difficult time and, of course, now have had this spectacular year of turnaround? No, I must say it is harder than I thought. And I, the company also was a bit more static than I thought. I mean, I left it almost 10 years ago. And when I came back, it was almost the same. So uh, uh, getting the people to, to move, to act, was almost the most difficult uh, thing to do and as, and especially you can understand if you have a uh, 13,000 people uh, who made losses for many years um, so change that psyche uh, and we're now at the point where people actually realize but this is possible how do you incentivize them do you do you distribute this fantastic profit that you had this year do you, people see it in their paychecks uh well, we have a we have a, a decent bonus scheme. In actually, in fact, uh, in twenty twenty with the COVID, we have a reasonable performance, but we didn't make any of our targets, and we still gave a, a handsome bonus to the people, just for being there, support and stuff like that. And we will do the same uh, in in the first quarter of this year. So, I guess the real story for investors now is your share price has has rocketed. Uh, you've been the best performing share on the JSC, certainly in the last year and maybe the last two years. You're stable, you, you're back into profit, you're not going to fall off the perch. But have you now reached the end of the road? Have you got to a point where ArcelorMittal South Africa has, has now kind of got a steady state perspective and, and you could look at the performance of the past year and say that's possible into the future? I think we have to prove sustainability still. Um, so I thought we have a lot of work to do. We had a, a, a very aggressive restructuring plan that we implemented up to now. We've now replaced it with a next five-year value plan and trying to create more value. Uh, and we have to deliver on that. In our type of business, if you're not cost-conscious and cost-competitive, you don't have a, a, a right uh, to exist. 
So we have still an, a fairly aggressive plan, um, which the, the total team bought into, and we're going to roll that out uh, in the next five years. And next five years, also very interesting things coming up. The whole decarbonization journey is an, a scary but very exciting uh, opportunity for a, a lot of people. How so? I mean, you will almost revitalize an old industry into new assets um, where we were not the sexy industry. You will attract uh, engineers and, and stuff. People will be able to, to learn. Um, no, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Do you get much support from ArcelorMittal globally? I mean, <coughs> I think the, their support over the past 10, 15 years of loss-making years were, were quite evident. Um, they they support the company almost in the tune of 8 billion rand directly. But from a, a support perspective, technical support, uh, yes, we get a lot of support, uh, effortless support. And personal support from the leadership and the owner, yes, pretty much. Do you see him much, uh, Mr. Mitter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we see, obviously, we don't travel anymore, but uh, we speak often. And, uh, so he takes an interest in what's going on no, in no, South no, Africa? No, no. Of course, he takes an interest. <laughs> How important he's a, he's are a, he's you? A, he's a, he's a, <laughs> we're not that important, uh -huh. but he's a passionate steelmaker. Uh, and he's got a relationship with uh, South Africa. And if you have a look at the whole steel market, uh, China producing about half of the steel uh, in the world, what's the story there? Because I guess if they switch on, uh, then the steel prices are going to get uh, under a lot of pressure. But if they decide to cut back on their steel production, and as state-owned, they can do that, uh, then steel prices around the world would be a lot firmer. Well, they have cut back. They've cut back... Uh well, they've reduced their uh, export incentives. That's one thing. And then they've cut back in production. Just explain that, export incentives from China. Were they subsidizing exports? Correct. You, you, they had a, a, a VAT rebate that supported exports. I think it's about 13%. Isn't that contrary to the World Trade Organization? I don't, I'm not sure on the specifics, but they've been uh, practicing that for many years. That has, mm. that has, uh, they've stopped that last year. And then they've got the energy shortages and they've got the emission problem, which further forced them to curtail uh, production. Now, that makes a big impact. I mean, they, they are the exporter of the world. So it will change the dynamics uh, a lot. And I think going forward, for countries to produce carbon steel, uh, admit CO2, take that and export it at substandard pricing will not uh, be encouraged. Um, so I think, uh, I think the outlook for the steel industry is a lot more positive in the next 10 years than the past 10 years. It's so interesting when you have a look at it from a broader perspective because some economists will say, close ArcelorMittal, let's just import from other parts of the world where you've got scale. It, it's got to be cheaper. But from what I'm hearing from you now is that there is a, there's a reason to have a local or a domestic steel industry. Well, I think, you, you know, you can outsource crude steel production for a period of time, but then you will start outsource the manufacturing of many other things. Uh, Russia or China will only 
put steel here for a period of time, then they will put the wheelbarrow here. So you will deindustrialize uh, in in total. Uh, but but I haven't think we done that already? Haven't we deindustrialized? I, I, I mean, what what was what was ArcelorMittal's peak output? Uh, or, no, no, uh, yeah, what was no, your no, peak before? No, I think we were about over seven million tons. And you're down to three. We're down to three. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I think you can reverse that. I also think from you talking from a, a, a scale perspective, I mean, I know the Chinese cost curves. Uh, we're there or thereabouts. It's not that China is substantially cheaper in production than we are. Yes, the fixed cost is cheaper. That I can. The energy cost is cheaper. And if you look only at those two elements, it's about 15% cheaper than ours on a total cost basis. So we have to find ways to to address that and, and resolve that, but uh, but they still got to get the steel here. They still got to, get and that will cost how much of the of the percentage? If you say it's fifteen percent cheaper to produce in China, it it will be another ten percent, I would assume. Right. So it's it comes very much correct. But if I look at, I mean, we are in the range of the the China. I mean, I've looked uh, recently at I think thirty six of the of the cost curve. It get published. There's an international. Uh, website on that and uh, we're not uncompetitive now your customers in south africa are you one of the companies that they love to hate over many years there have been people first of all going to the competition commission and other people complaining as they have done on business uh, in our columns saying you guys went to the government you got duty protection uh reading in your annual report that expired but you need to explain that to me as well but you're still charging much more than you should be charging. What's your counter-argument to that? I mean, our price is derived from an international price. So firstly, our price is actually regulated. So there's an international formula, dollars converted to, uh, to uh, by the exchange rate, and that's the cap. And then you also have an import uh, parity. I mean, so I've got two caps to my price. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, international prices increased last year substantially more than prices domestically. So uh, that's not, I mean, you always have, uh, and when you talk about duties, it's not for AMSA. The duties are there for the industry. I mean, last year, I think there was, uh, most probably for on the local sales side, we sold just over 2 million tons. Our competitors sold 1.1 million tons. 1.3 was imported. They also get uh, protection. Um, so it's not that uh, uh, it's a freebie, and the 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 rules around duties is WTO standards, and it's not only South Africa. Steel's been dutied all over the world. Even China's got duties on South Africa. Russia's got duty on South Africa steel. Turkey's got duties on India. So those four exporting countries all have duties on us exporting steel to them. So it's a bit of an education process that people uh, uh, need to need to do. And duty is not a steel thing. I mean, if you import a car, there's duties. And if you import cigarettes, whatever, um, uh, duties got charged on, on, on many products. Um, and there's good reason for. What are those reasons? Uh, to create fairness. As I said to you earlier, you, you cannot have ca- uh, countries where energy is subsidized or labor subsidized or the Chinese don't factor in what's finance cost uh, and all that that benefits and they export the residual part 
and also incentivize it. That's so complex, isn't it? And it's so easy to be simplistic about these things. But I think that the real question for South Africans generally is that we've seen this industrial base of ours being hollowed out. And here you've got a company that's now back in profit and is saying, we want to be the champion of the manufacturing sector for South Africa. How do you do that in an environment where it doesn't appear as though there's a heck of a lot that's supporting you? Just look at electricity prices as a, as a starting point. No, I, I do think, but just coming back to one point, when you talk to our customers, I mean... Our customers are generally satisfied with our service and our quality. Our quality is, I mean, you always have one or two uh, potential complaints, but I don't know, maybe they're competitors, not customers. So uh, we've got over 1.3 million tons of imports into the country. So how do we work with our customers to displace that firstly? Um, we've got capacity potential. I mean, we can restart a Sultana. We can increase our current production base, most probably by almost a million tons. So there's capacity that can be made available. Um, how do we work with customers to displace that? Once you start displacing that, then you start industrializing on a small scale. But ultimately, um, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity. But we need baseline economic growth uh, to ignite these things. I, I think the tools are there, the people are there, the assets are there. Um, we just need the government to unleash that. But we've seen massive gearing in your company uh, in, in that your turnover last year went up about 15 billion and the bottom line turnaround was 9 billion. So yeah. it dropped straight, almost straight to the bottom line. If you were to see South Africa growing again, the economy growing, not at 3%, but perhaps 5 and 6 and, and, and more, is that what you're looking for? Is that where the real turnaround will become apparent? Correct. If you have growth of, the, say, 1.8%, there around about 1.5% to 1.8%, your steel consumption stays static. So once you get to 3%, it's actually a hockey stick. It gets accelerated substantially. So if we can get to the 3 to 5%, I mean, that will be many, very beneficial for the steel industry, not for us. Are you seeing any signs of that happening? I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, you have, to, you have to remain positive. I mean, the, the energy, renewable energy, that will already start um, with, I think, a, a very long-term constant supply of quality uh, demand. Um, I think there's some water dam projects that is imminent. So uh, I think once uh, once those things happen, I think the, I won't say privatization, but sort of the allowing uh, private sector involvement in ports and rail will also start to uh, have a positive impact. So the words are good. The SONA, uh, State of the Nation, was saying all of these things after many years, perhaps appreciating where the country has been going wrong and saying the good things. But but you're at the rock face. You you you. you feel whether demand is going up or not and are you seeing yet from industry that they're starting to believe the story this turnaround story for the country i i don't i don't necessarily think so i think people are very uh, skeptical but south africans are also very positive people i mean i can tell you the people in our industry 
look at opportunities um, to participate and to support growth. Um, so I think uh, I'm I'm maybe naively so, but I am still positive because we don't have much other choices. Uh, <laughs> some of these things would would be uh, would start uh, materializing. Yeah, there's no there's no point in being negative if you're living in the country like correct, ours. Correct. But it, it, if you look outside of the borders of South Africa and you do service other parts of the African continent, what's the feedback from there? Well, I think if you look at the at the steel demand potential in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, it's also massive. So there is a big uh, potential to the extent that the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement make it easier to do that and start, I don't want to say protecting, but look at uh, two-way trade instead of trading with China or Russia or whatever. I think there's a lot of opportunities there, not necessarily for us directly, but for our customers who have that indirect growth. So those are all things that's on the card that's being discussed in, in, in various areas, but all government uh, sort of sponsored or stuff, and, and the government wheels are, are slow. But one would assume that uh, eventually these 50% of these cards can actually stack up. So if, if I look at it from a long-term perspective, we were to take a 10-year view on Oslo Middle South Africa, You've, you've been through the worst. You, you're not going bankrupt. You've, you've now started moving back into profit. You've refocused, restructured the business, and you've got ideas and plans to, to make that even better. You have on your doorstep a free trade agreement with the rest of the continent, which has now been enacted. And you also have a government which is talking the right talk, even though it might take a long time, as you've mentioned, for that to come through. So if you take that 10-year view, I guess you would see things being a lot more positive uh, in a decade's time than they are today. I think there's, there's two things. I, I, as I said, I think the international steel market would be more positive the next 10 years than the previous 10. And then in South Africa, uh, I do think that the next 10 years can only be better. Um, and if you stack up all of those things, uh, I do think a much more positive outlook for for us as a company, but as an industry, but I think generally. So what is it going to take for ArcelorMittal to start reinvesting again? As I mentioned earlier, you've got 8 billion rand in assets, in, in plant and, and property and equipment, and you've already achieved 8 billion rand in profit. You've got Saldana, uh, a steel works waiting to be reopened, so I guess you don't really need to start building any more steel factories. But what's it going to take for you to, to really, for your global parent, to really pump money in, in fixed investment here? Well, I think we, we have to generate the, the, the cash that, that we want to invest. I think that's the important thing. I think we deleverage the balance sheet and will allow us to, to, to leverage again for the appropriate assets. I mean, our plans is for, for this year, you know, our cap, capex is going to be substantially more than doubled than last year. It was about... What was it last so year? About a billion rand. About a billion? So yeah. you're doubling it up? Yeah, more than doubling it up. In, in where? How would you spend that? <coughs> well, we spend, uh, we, we have some environmental projects that we are doing. We're doing some quality projects and we're doing some general maintenance uh, and restoration uh, work. So we are investing. 
Uh, and then we've got some uh, expansion, not expansion, more on the quality side. So uh, where we improve our quality and renew stuff. And so uh, we are investing, but the next phase of investing is to invest in renewable energy uh, as part of the decarbonization journey. So and and the cost of electricity, those investments become commercially very easy to justify. For yourselves, in other words, Correct, yes. instead of using electricity, you, you put in renewable plants of your own. Correct. We've, we've been out uh, on tender, we've received them, so we'd have to now just uh, do a, a rollout plan for ourselves. I mean, we can do up to uh, 100 megawatt per plant. So that, that is in action. We can what percentage of your electricity bill would that cover? I would assume around uh, 40%. It is significant then. Yes, but then we also have projects where we will convert gas, more gas to electricity, self-generation. So we've got uh, capacity for that. That's in the development stage. Uh, we want to increase our scrap consumption in our plants. It's also a reduction in CO2. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of investment opportunities. We are we're looking at a feasibility study at the Tabazimbe mine to see if we can restart that mine and then be self-sufficient uh, on iron ore. And you still own that, Tabazembe? Yes, yes. It didn't go off to Kumba, why? I it actually did, but they mined it for us. Uh, at, at uh, Well, we paid for everything, and when the, the mine actually stopped, transferred it back to us for rehab purposes or what. Um, That's but, an interesting but, upside. But today, technology has changed. What you thought 10 years or 20 years ago is not feasible. It now can become feasible. So it, it sounds like you go to bed at night not worrying as much as you certainly were a couple of years ago, but, but looking at a, perhaps a brighter future. No, I think a more exciting future. And, 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 and uh, yeah, I think uh, there's more opportunities. And one can start now. I mean, having a bit of profit and money, you can all reinvest in people. Uh, you can do the things that you could not do two years ago. Uh, you have to scale down training. You have to do all of those things. Uh, so at the point where we are actually employing people, uh, which is different. Um, we're we upscaling uh, our training programs to more than our own requirements, which we've done years back. So those are, are, are the <coughs> nicer things to be able to do. It's nice to go to work when you're looking at the sunshine rather than having grey skies above Correct. you every day. Talking to the lawyers. <laughs> Is it though, uh, the, are you at, at the latest set of results? Uh, is that kind of solid state earnings? Is that, is that can investors bank and say, well, at least in future, um, it's likely that production is going to go up. It's likely that prices are not going to fall at least that this is the kind of number that you can start writing into your forecast? No, I think, I think prices already start coming off uh, second half, fourth quarter last year. We lag on the upside and we will lag a bit on the, on the downside. And I think, you know, last year was abnormal. And I don't think people should expect that party to continue. But <coughs> after 2008, steel prices collapsed. We haven't seen a collapse. We've seen a correction, a softening. And we actually now, to date, see prices uh, coming up a bit. So there's support from the cost base uh, for these type of, of, of prices. And, and spreads are still relative attractive. Um, so I think uh, people should do their own calculations. But, uh, I mean, 
you know, in the U.S., our troll coil prices was $2,300 per ton. Now, that can is not sustainable. Back to a thousand five hundred, thousand four hundred, which is most probably more realistic. And just to close off with Quibus, what is your dream for ArcelorMittal? If you could again wave a magic wand, would it be to dominate steel production in Africa? Would it be at least to challenge the Egyptians, uh, who are producing twice as much? I was surprised to see that steel as South Africa does. No, I want us. To, I want. I want the ArcelorMittal South Africa to be a leading organization in the country, not necessarily by size or whatever, but in what we do, that we are above average, that we're good in how we treat our people, how we service our customers, and how we interact uh, with society. So it's a South Africa focus first. 100%. Before you start dreaming about the rest of the continent. 100%. Enough work to do here, is that what you're telling us? <laughs> yeah, we still have a lot of work to do internally, but a lot of work in, in the country.